you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Luke chapter 16 is where we will pick up and continue this morning. So grab a Bible and uh, find Luke 16 or turn on your phone and find Luke 16. Join you there. We're looking today at yet another unique passage of Scripture to Luke's Gospel. Luke has a number of passages that are unique to him, a number of parables, a number of sayings and teachings that are unique to only Luke. This is another one of those, and this will follow uh, his theme, one of his many themes that we have noticed. I know that you've noticed many times of how Luke likes to speak of the neglect of the poor and his treatment of those who are maligned by society. He likes to talk about those that are on the outskirts of accepted culture and society. And this one kind of continues on with that sort of thing. This one is also, not only is it unique to Luke, but this passage is also unique in all of Scripture for a few reasons. First of all, this is the only parable that Jesus tells in which someone is named. Um, So that's unique also uh, to Luke. This is also a unique passage of Scripture. Because this is the only place in all of Scripture in which we are given privy the thoughts and emotions and words of someone who has been condemned to hell. So with that in mind, we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 16. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Just remind ourselves of the context of the passage. We've been talking for the last couple of Sundays about Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 begins as Jesus tells this parable that's directed towards those who are lovers of money. And the parable has to do with what we've talked about. We called him the dishonest servant or the dishonest uh, uh, steward. And Jesus seems to commend this dishonest steward for his dishonesty, for his underhandedness as he is being fired from his position. He goes around to his master's debtors and... Um, Curry's favor with them by reducing their debt that they owe to the master. And Jesus seems to commend him for this and then recommend to us that we do the same thing or a similar sort of thing. So we struggle with that a little bit, but we saw that what Jesus was saying was, was simply a comparison. If the people of this world who, who look to such a limited future here on this life, if they can look to their future and see a future that is not desirable and then use the resources available to them to improve that future... How much more should the children of God use the resources provided to us to, as Jesus says, make friends that will greet you in the eternal dwelling? In other words, to use God's earthly resources for furtherance of the gospel so that when we reach that heavenly dwelling, there will be those there who may say to us, you know what, God used you, you had a part in my being here. So Jesus tells that story, and those who are listening, one of the main points of the story, obviously, is that Jesus is talking about a focus on eternal dwellings, eternal focus instead of earthly focus. And those who are listening, the Pharisees, know that Jesus is rebuking them. So they sneer at him because the passage says that they are lovers of money. So they jeer at Jesus. They mock Jesus. So then Jesus turns to them in the passage that we looked at last week, 
He turns to them and says uh, to them that they are the followers of false religion. They are self-justifiers, Jesus says. They are uh, people with evil hearts, Jesus says. They have uh, perverted desires. They reject the gospel of grace, Jesus says. And then he goes on to give an example. um, The point is that these Pharisees have accused Jesus of being someone who relaxes the law, as oftentimes they attack Jesus for his uh, observance of the Sabbath that they don't like, or healing on the Sabbath that they don't like, those different sorts of things they have accused him of being a relaxer of the law. And this is another instance in which they think that Jesus is one who teaches people to have a low regard for the law. So Jesus, after saying that to them, he then says, I'm not the relaxer of the law. You are the relaxers of the law. He goes on to then give an example. Here's one example, he says, and the example is divorce and remarriage. This is a law that they have relaxed. They teach others to relax this law, and they themselves have relaxed this law. So Jesus says, it's not me that has a low view of the law. It's you that has a low view of the law. And then Jesus um, makes that analogy that the, the word of God, the law will never pass away. We looked briefly last time at the essence of the law, the nature of the law. Why is it that, that Jesus says the law will never pass away? Because, like we said last week, the, the law of God, the moral law, is not uh, a list of rules that God thought would be good rules for us to follow and then gave us these rules. Uh, neither is the law of God these eternal principles that God, in his wisdom, knows that, you know what, it's good for people to tell the truth. So let me tell my people about this sort of universal truth. The law is neither of those. Instead, the law is a description of the character of God. When God says to his people, be people of truth, the reason is that he is truth and we are made in his image. And so when we are unfaithful to the character of God in which we are made, we sin against ourselves, we sin against other image bearers, and we sin against the one whose image we do bear. There are many other examples that we could talk about. So that's sort of summed it up last time. And then from that, Jesus then goes into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is, just to kind of let us know up front, maybe I don't even have to tell you this, this is an enormously weighty passage of Scripture. Any passage of Scripture that deals with the eternal torment of those condemned in the place that we refer to as hell, um, there's no way that that could be uh, anything but a weighty, heavy passage of Scripture. So, Keeping that in mind, let's go ahead and read the passage together. I'm going to begin um, where the parable begins at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner had things, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'm going to stop there and ask for God's help in our discerning of this scripture. Father, we pray that as we wrestle with this most heavy of scriptures, that you would um, strike within us a holy balance between divine conviction and awe over the fate that awaits those who are outside of Jesus Christ and immense gratitude for those whose fate is sealed in Christ because he has suffered this for us. We pray, Lord, that our thoughts would be directed to the Messiah who was forsaken by his Father to endure the harshest of separation and the harshest of torment on my behalf so that by faith his righteousness and salvation are extended to me. So we pray, Lord, that this would be a um, most sobering time and a most glorifying time. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So it's important, I think, as we begin to think through this, that Jesus is crafting a story. This is a fictional story. It is a parable. Now, you may have heard that this is not a parable. And the reason that it's not a parable is because somebody has a name in there. And um, I'm missed the part of scripture that says that parables can never have names of people in there. That's not a passage I've found yet. So as far as I as far as I know, there's no rule that says that a parable has to be uh, has to consist of people that are not named. Um, but this is a fictionalized story. The details of the story um, alone let us know that this is a story that Jesus is crafting to make a point. It's important, I think, to know that ahead of time because there are some elements of the story that um, are told as they are told for the purpose of making certain spiritual points. We shouldn't read the parable and think that people in hell can look and see what's going on in heaven and sort of have this conversation back and forth. Um, those types of elements are fictionalized elements for Jesus to make the points that he wants to make. So Lazarus, uh, was not a, a real genuine person. The rich man was not. But instead, Jesus is crafting this story that comes across so very clearly to us in three distinct acts. Life, death, and then that which comes after death. Or that word that I always hate using this word, afterlife. Because it, it makes it sound like, okay, what comes next is after the real life is over. But life, death, and then the next life that comes after this life. Three clear, distinct acts for us. And the story is one that is a story of extreme contrasts, radical changes. The rich man and Lazarus will, they experience the most radically different of lives. And then death makes the most radically different changes in both of their circumstances. So with those elements in mind, um, 
Let's just begin, as is our custom from the beginning, and we'll walk through the passage and noticing some things as we go from verse 19. There was a rich man, and this rich man was not just any old rich man, according to the story that Jesus is crafting. He was an excessively rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. You probably are familiar with the, the dyeing of purple in biblical times. It was a process... Um, it was called um, Tyrrhenian dye or Phoenician dye because uh, the, the area of Tyre or what's called Phoenicia uh, was where these certain seashells could be harvested. And these seashells, a certain type of uh, seashell, would emit a certain secretion that could be used for making purple dye. Uh, tens of thousands of these seashells would have to be harvested in order to uh, to, to get any amount of dye that could dye a piece of clothing. So you can imagine the expense of purple clothing. Uh, the purple dye, I should have had a picture up here to show you, but it was not, you know, it wasn't even a real attractive sort of purple. It, uh, I wish I put a picture up here for you, but it was, it, was like a, it was like a neon purple, not even like sort of deep purple. It was a bright, sort of gaudy, bright neon uh, uh, purple color that would have stood out in a sea of brown and off-white, which is what most of the other clothing would have been. And the whole point of that was just to show the extravagance of one's wealth, just to say, the clothing that I wear, I, I'm of such a person of, of, of such means that this enormously expensive dye is, is I can wear clothes like that, just not, not on normal, or not on special occasions, but... On everyday occasions, Jesus tells a story. The language uh, seems to indicate that this is how he dresses every day. We probably know people that are people of means and people of wealth, or we think of, you know, movie stars or people that have uh, lots of financial means. And maybe you're like me. You see picture these pe pictures of these people on red carpet affairs, and you wonder, I wonder what, wonder what they dress like when they're just hanging out at home. They probably dress kind of like we do, just some comfortable sorts of clothing. But not this guy. Every day. He dressed in these fine purple cloth. Uh, and then not only that, but he also dressed in fine linen underneath. Now that wouldn't have, would not have been the normal type of clothing that was made from flax, which, was, which most people would have worn. It would have been a little bit rough and uncomfortable, but this would have been fine Egyptian linen made from the finest cotton, you know, high thread counts. You all know what the difference between a, a, a really fine piece of cloth next to your skin compared to something that's sort of rough and scratchy, right? This is how this guy dressed each and every day. He dressed in such a way that he went to an enormous expense to show others what a person of means he was. But not only that, it also says that he feasted sumptuously every day. So each and every day, uh, you know, he doesn't have the TV dinners, he doesn't, eat sort of, doesn't have sandwiches. He feasts sumptuously every day. There's always... A feasting at his disposal. And now notice the contrast, of course, that comes, the radical contrast that comes in verse 20. But at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And there goes the name. Now there's a reason that Jesus names Lazarus in the... Actually, there's two reasons. And we'll talk about those as we go. But there we have the, this radical contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, it says, is laid at his gate... Now, the word laid is not a real good translation because it's the word for throw. So literally, he was 
thrown at the man's gate. Why was he thrown at the gate? Well, the implication is because he can't walk there. So apparently he's also a paralytic. And he's thrown. I get the picture in my mind of something that's not so gentle. It's not like the, the paralytic's friends who were lowering him down so he could get to Jesus. This was more like some people that were tired of stepping over him and they thought a good place to put him is at this person's gate. He's got plenty of food. Let's throw him over here. So this picture of just utter disdain by those around him. And they throw him at the gate. So he's a paralytic. Not only is he a paralytic, he's also a leper. Because the next phrase says that he was covered in sores. And I'm sure that you've seen the footnotes in your Bibles as uh, you read a passage that mentions a leper or leprosy. Those footnotes are all over my Bible. Um, that says that basically leprosy is, is in the Bible is not just limited to what we call today uh, Hansen's disease, is that the name of it? Hansen's disease. It's not limited to the um, uh, actual disease of leprosy. But in biblical times, when we see that word leper or leprosy, that could refer to any number of skin disorders. Um, so if we live in biblical times, chances are pretty good that at some point in your life you would be considered a leper just because any sort of skin disorder would qualify you for that. So this man was, not only was he a paralytic, but he was also a leper. You see the picture that Luke is painting of a person on the extreme edge of society. Um, so he's a leper, he's a paralytic, but not only that, he's also enormously poor um, because he was uh, thrown at the gate, covered with sores, and verse 21, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. I read that verse and I can't help but think of Mark 7, verse 28. Remember the um, uh, uh, Syrian woman? Was it a Syrian woman who wants Jesus to heal her daughter? And, she's, and Jesus says, um, I wasn't sent uh, for, uh, I was sent for the house of Israel. It's not right to, to feed the Gentiles uh, with the food that's meant for the house of God and, and the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman answers him by saying, uh, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from that fall from the table. So I think of that passage. I think of Lazarus here wanting to eat the crumbs that fall from the table of the rich man. And it makes me think, I don't know if you've ever thought this, were ancient people just that messy of eaters? I mean, because we seem to come across that idea of eating the crumbs. Now, if we're talking about my kids, we could, we could feed a couple of families from what falls on the table under my kid. But normal people... Do we really eat? Did ancient people drop that much food? And here's one of the instances in which um, most of the time when we, as we always like to say here, um, when we study the Bible, it's not a matter of bringing the Bible into today. It's a matter of bringing us into the Bible's world. That's how we rightly understand it, by taking ourselves into that culture, not bringing that culture into ours. So to take ourselves into that culture... Oftentimes we do that and we say, okay, there are some differences here and there, but there are people like us. Uh, they were normal people that, that had normal sorts of goings about in their day like we do. But then every once in a while we come across something that's just weird. And this is one of those really weird things that they did, that rich people did in Jesus' day. Um, you might think that people of wealth, when they were eating, they might want to show their wealth by using these nice fine linen purple dyed cloth napkins. But that wasn't the way that they showed their opulence. Uh, when wealthy people 
who wanted to show the village or the city in which they lived, show others just how much we have, they would, first of all, they would eat in the courtyard so that they could be visible. People could see. They could walk by and see what's on their table. And just, oh, wow. Uh, but then they would also, get this, they would wipe their hands with bread. Weird, right? Weird. But they would use bread as napkins. And it was a way to show, because that's what everybody worked for. That's what people, that, that was the effort of their life to work and earn, metaphorically, bread. And, and most of it was literally bread that they worked for. That was the goal of every day of their life, to get some of that, to eat. And then here's these people of such wealth and such means that they say, oh, we can wipe our hands with what you work for to sustain your life, Right? Kind of like the modern-day analogy, you've heard uh, money to burn, or burning money. You have this image of people that literally burn cash to stay warm. And you're like, what a crazy thing. But it's the same sort of thing. It's, I, I will use something that you have to work so hard to get, I will use it to wipe my hands. And so from that, you can see that would generate an enormous amount of crumbs on the table. And that from that comes this idea of eating the crumbs from the table. I am so humble and so humiliated and so needful that I will eat what you wiped your hands with. And he longed to eat just that. But he's a paralytic and he can't get there in time. And the dogs get there and get it before he can. What a picture utter wretchedness. And then to add insult to injury, then it says that those same dogs, after eating what would have kept him alive a little bit longer, then they come and they lick his sores. Now don't, in your mind, have a picture of you know this man's best friend, old yeller, coming and just you know wanting to help him out and, oh, let me lick your sore. No. That idea of a dog in Jesus' day was, was unheard of. There was no man's best friend. The, the, our modern conception of, of all the, the different breeds of dogs that man has manipulated and, into these lap dog breeds and everything, that was unknown in Jesus' day. Uh, you may be aware that, that there were people in ancient times like the Egyptians who would have dogs as pets, but they weren't our modern idea of a dog. They were more like a jackal or a hyena type of dog. And if um, you've ever read about that or watched shows, nature-type shows of people that live in Africa, uh, they will tell you that jackals are not welcome. They are, they, hyenas are not a pleasant breed of animal to have around. They're like giant rats is what they really are. And so these giant rats would come and lick his sores. The picture of wretchedness, of human misery is overwhelming to us. Here is a man that wipes his hand with bread that would feed another human being. And as the story will show us, never takes the time to even give him some scraps. And then at his gate is another human being made in the image of God that is living under such 
unspeakable human misery that even just to this point in the story, our hearts are kind of breaking for Lazarus. But then we read this. The dogs came and licked the sores. Verse 22. The poor man died. And we're almost like, well, that's a relief. Glad that he has now passed, right? We've all known people that were suffering. And when the passing of their physical life comes, we're like, okay, I'm glad that that has now happened because anything was better than the condition that this person was living in. So we hear of Lazarus' death and we're, we're relieved to think that his suffering is over. He dies. There's no word about a, a burial or anything. There is. Uh, we are told that the rich man will be buried when he's died. But there's no word of burial for Lazarus. His body was probably taken to the dump and thrown into the dump to be burned. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Here we begin the radical transformation. The story is going to absolutely, it'll make our heads spin how radically everything will switch places here. Death, physical death, will now radically reverse all of the circumstances of both of these people's lives. All of the physical circumstances and financial circumstances and all those uh, trappings of both of their lives are going to be so radically reversed that I was almost head spinning, but the, the uh, poor man was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Not literally. Okay, again, this, Jesus is crafting a story here. Uh, angels don't come and pick up our body and take our body to heaven, right? We've all been to funerals and we know the body is in the box. And the body goes in the ground. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. But he's carried to Abraham's side. Your translation, if you're looking at an older translation, may say bosom. Abraham's bosom. Um, only place in the Bible where that word shows up, uh, not really a word that we use, but it, it was it was meant to, it's a good translation, at his side. It's meant to be, um, you know, how you can kind of sit on the couch with your kids and they sort of get as close up underneath you. And that's the, that's the picture here. He's, he's as close physically to Abraham as he can be. Now, Abraham in the story is Jesus. So when we read Abraham, we're thinking Jesus. Jesus is teaching it. What Abraham is going to say it's what Jesus says. Um, and so we're thinking Jesus here. But he is as close to Abraham as we can be. And I'm thinking of Luke 14. Remember Luke 14? Where Jesus tells the story. He's teaching about humility there. And he says, when you go to this wedding feast, don't take the most prominent place, uh, but instead sit in the lowest place. And if you get moved up, all the better. If not, then you're not, it's not so embarrassed. And we talked about that scripture. One of the things that we said was, in Jesus' day, when you would go to this banquet, it was very, very laid out, very um, strict in terms of the places of honor. There was the host who sat in the center of the table. And the closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. So, Lazarus is said to be physically as close to the host as he could get. The, the place of honor could not be more extreme. Here's a man who was reviled in life and he's carried into the place of highest honor. Um, so meanwhile, the poor man was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And he lifted up his eyes. I'm sorry. The rich man was buried and in Hades, I'll stop right there, 
In the New Testament, Hades always means hell. In the Old Testament, it's sort of an evolving concept of Hades. Sometimes Hades means the grave or death. Um, sometimes it means a place of torment. In the New Testament, it always means hell. So the rich man was buried and he is now in hell. I can't help but think what they were saying about this person. Because you know what the assumption is. This was Jewish society. This, the rich man and Lazarus are both Jews, right? The rich man is going to call Abraham Father Abraham. He's going to say child. So he's, they're Jews. And he is a rich, wealthy Jew. Everyone would have thought that man is in God's favor. Obviously. Obviously, he is a treasured child of God because look at what God has done for him in his life. Meanwhile, this guy Lazarus, we're not sure what he did, but it was bad. Maybe his parents did something awful. Maybe he has sinned in some awful sort of way, but clearly this is a man that is under the curse of God. Meanwhile, the rich man, no one would have thought, uh, I wonder how he is spiritually with God. They would have looked at his life and their theology would have told them this is a person that is blessed of God, that is beloved by God, and that is favored by God. So at his funeral, his praises probably would have been lauded while he was in hell. One of the things that I always lament is how, particularly in our culture, everybody that dies was a good Christian. It's, just, it's really sad, and I know why it happens. I've been there, right? Um, pastoring a traditional church prior to this, uh, you know, you get the phone calls from so-and-so funeral home. We have such-and-such -such a party. They want a minister for the funeral. They don't have one. Will you come and do the service? And you, you know that there is no reason whatsoever to think that this person is now in the presence of God. And yet, here's a hurting family. And that's what people want. Funerals are not about speaking about the person that has passed. Funerals are all about comforting the people that have been left behind, right? That's what they want. So I know why that happens. But what a tragedy that at that time, when this person, in this story, is now in the flames of hell that we'll talk about, more than likely, those who knew him are comforting each other by saying, we know he's in a better place. So, here he is, he's been buried, he's now in hell, and being in torment. Um, the passage is going to... Uh, at this point here, radically heavy. Um, because we will now read a description of how he feels, what he's experiencing, and what he's going to say. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So notice the reversal in life. Uh, the poor man um, had nothing. The rich man had everything. Now, Lazarus has everything, and the rich man has nothing. 
in life, Lazarus was locked outside. He was thrown outside the gate, not even allowed in. Um, now, in this next existence, the rich man is the one who is locked out. In life, Lazarus was the one who, who was humiliated, and the rich man was shown great honor. Now Lazarus is the one who is honored, and the rich man will be forever humiliated. Uh, in life, uh, Lazarus longed for a crumb of bread. Now Lazarus feasts at the eternal feast at the table of our Messiah. Meanwhile, in life, the rich man feasted every day. Now the rich man is going to be the one who longs not for a crumb, but even just a drop of water. Lazarus longed for a crumb. Now the rich man longs for a drop of water. Um, we can go on and on. The radical change, the difference that has taken place, is startling. Um, but we see the description, torment, uh, torment in verse 23, verse 24, uh, anguish, verse 25. Once again, the word anguish, uh, drop down to verse uh, 29 or 28, and again, the word torment. Uh, those words are painting for us a drastically uh, bad picture. Imagine, imagine if you would, the worst thing that has ever happened to you. Imagine your most horrible experience. Um, the most fearful, terrifying frightening moment of your life. Uh, maybe you were in an automobile accident and for a moment you thought that a, a very painful death was about to happen to you. Um, or, uh, you know, maybe you have, uh, like I've done, you've been in a big public place and lost a child. And, you know, that fear, right? Imagine that. The greatest fear of your life. Couple that together with the most extreme anxiety you've ever experienced, the most extreme worry. Uh, add that in together with um, the greatest depression that you've, you've ever experienced. Uh, couple that together with, with just the, the, um, the worst possible experience you've ever had in your life. Ball it up into one and now make it permanent. And take away from that any aspect of hope that it might one day get better. You know, we can endure a lot if we have hope. I've read, I'm sure you have too, I've read lots of books of uh, persecuted Christians and, and whatnot, and they're, they're placed in these horrible situations, uh, horrible treatment in prisons and whatnot, and they'll talk about other prisoners, and the time comes when they lose hope, and then they die. Because as long as there's some hope, we can endure a lot. There is no hope that his situation will ever change for the better. Roll all that together into one, make it permanent, and that is his eternal existence from this point forward. So he is in torment. He is in anguish. And it is eternal anguish. There is a heretical teaching that I'm, I'm sure you've heard. It's not new. It's been around for as long as, almost as long as Christianity has been around. But it's gaining some traction today and it goes like this. I'm sure you've heard it, that hell is not this eternal everlasting punishment that we've been taught it is. You heard that? Okay. That hell is either a temporary punishment 
or it is most people like to think uh, who follow this sort of thinking they like to think that it is this annihilation of the soul that those who are in Christ Jesus will enjoy eternity with him forever after this life but those who are not will cease to exist and that comes quite frankly from our emotions because we don't want to think about that has no biblical precedent whatsoever the closest that it comes is uh, Matthew chapter 10 yeah, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, there's that word, destroy both soul and body in hell. And from that, some have built a theology that says, well, God's going to destroy those souls that are outside of Christ. Well, the word translated destroy there is a common Greek word. shows up in many different contexts, and it never... It's one of those words that, that does have a range of meaning, like a lot of words, but none of its meanings... Never does it mean to cease to exist. It means to render useless. It means to incapacitate. It means to make it not functional. It never means to make it cease to exist. So we have no real biblical precedent precedence for that, but we do have a biblical precedence for the everlastingness of the torment in hell. For example, Romans 14 uh, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. For Revelation 20, uh, they will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Daniel 12, verse 2, everlasting contempt. Or Mark 9, um, uh, the fire is not quenched, etc., etc. We, we continue going. Um, but clearly we have words that are used to describe the existence in hell that are translated into things like everlasting never-ending, forever and ever, and so on we could go. But at the, end of that, at the end of that argument, the bottom line is this. If God does not intend for us to understand that hell is everlasting and eternal, then neither is heaven. Because the same words are used to describe both, in both the Old Testament and the New. So if you want to believe in a hell that is not eternal, then you must also stop believing in a heaven that is eternal as well. So this is an eternal, never-ending, never-hopeful, never-changing circumstance that the rich man now finds himself in. Um, as bad as it could possibly be without hope, um, without, uh, without hope for any positive change. So here we see um, a description of this man in hell. We are reminded, of course, that the majority of our descriptions of this place come from the Gospels, at the lips of Jesus. Jesus was one who spoke of this frequently. I'm not going to trace the dozen or so instances in which he talks about this, but the words that he uses consistently will be familiar words to us. Weeping. Wailing gnashing of teeth, anguish, torment. Um, the picture is one uh, that we need not uh, labor any further. So we see that he's now in hell. He saw Abraham afar off at, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So right there we learn two things about the, the rich man. First thing that we learn is he knows Lazarus' name. 
Here was a person who was thrown at his gate in the most extreme of human misery. And it wasn't like that the rich man was so busy he never noticed him. Or maybe he saw him at a distance or what. He knew his name. He knew the man's name. He recognizes him. He had enough contact with him. He was in close enough proximity to him in life that he recognizes him in the next life. He knew his name. It's enough to think of a man of his means that could be as cold and cruel to people that were far off, that he didn't have to come in contact, but he knows his name. It's an extraordinary thing. But the second thing that we notice is even more condemning for the rich man. Even in the next life, he thinks of Lazarus as his boy. Send Lazarus. Yeah. Yeah, send him. In this life, he was very accustomed to being served. And he was no doubt very accustomed to seeing people around him as beneath him. And one of the things to see there... Yeah, there, there is no repentance. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. That hell, hell has not reformed him at all. There is no repentance in his heart and he still sees Lazarus as someone beneath him. That Hey, Abraham, send, send that boy Lazarus on to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue. He saw Lazarus beneath him in this life and it's hard to stop. He <coughs> continues to go on seeing Lazarus beneath him in the next life. And you want to think, Jesus doesn't put these words in Abraham's mouth, but you want to say, um, I think if I were Abraham, I would say something to this effect. I don't think you understand. I don't think you get the picture yet. You are there. And that is where you belong. And that is where you will stay. He is in the place of honor now. But he still sees him as, as his little... Aaron boy. So he says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am anguish. I am in anguish in this flame. And flame is another common description of, of hell. I don't know if there's any literal equivalent to that in, in the actual hell, but there's literal flames or it's just a description of something that is um, shockingly painful. You know how burning the sensation of burning is shockingly painful. It's like uh, it's similar to getting um, uh, to touching electricity, or if you've, ever, you've been bit by a poisonous bug or, or, or snake or something, and it's like electricity goes into it bites you on your hand and it's, like, it's that shocking kind of. It's not just that that somebody punched you on the arm and it hurts, but it shocks you too. Maybe that's the message being communicated here. That it's not just this dull, sort of agonizing pain. It's shocking. It's revolting type of pain. So we see this. i got some references in your notes about uh, other references to flame and fire. But verse 25, But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in his manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. This tremendous reversal. And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In other words, this is permanent. 
Don't expect to change. This is everlasting. Uh, but again, we don't see that literally as in literally uh, these two people are talking and having this conversation and even contemplating the possibility of passing from one to the other. But verse 27, and he said, Then I, may, I beg you, Father, to send him, there he is again, send the boy to do my bidding. He wants Lazarus, a man that he did not have the time of day for, could not even throw him a loaf of bread in this life. He wants Lazarus to leave the comfort and joy of heaven to go to his brothers who also, no doubt, had no time for him in this life. That's how he thinks of Lazarus. Your eternal comfort is no more important to me than, you know, leave it to go do my bidding so that my brothers don't come here. When his brothers Shocking. were in the same place, though, his brothers would have known this guy fairly intimately. He would have been in the same case as the rich man. If they were dead. What I'm saying is, you know, walking around the gate where Lazarus was, you would think the proximity and all of the same stuff would be there. They just stepped Right. Right. So maybe they would recognize Lazarus, yeah. that kind of thing. That's what you're getting at? Yeah. He's mm -hmm. saying, basically, send Lazarus, maybe not just as a servant, but someone they would know. They would come yeah. from the dead. Right. Which is another reason that Lazarus is named. Yeah. So that. You know, it's not just a generic poor man. This is Lazarus. You know him. You know him by name. His brothers know him by name. Right. So I think that's another reason that Jesus gives him a name. But yeah, I think you're onto something there. Um, but send Lazarus for my five brothers, so that they may, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now pause right there, and let's ask ourselves: Why does he want Lazarus to go to his brothers? Do you think it's because of concern? Possibly, possibly, but I would, I think that we should think of where he is. If he wants Lazarus to go to his brothers because he's concerned for them, because he loves them, there's no love in hell. I don't think, and, he, and I'll tell you why in, in just a moment, but I don't think he wants Lazarus to go to his brothers because he's concerned for them. I think he wants Lazarus to go to his brothers to ease his own guilt. Because now he is suffering for his guilt. And he wants to lessen his guilt by sending someone to convert his brothers. He's the eldest brother. Well, we assume he's the eldest brother because he's the first to die. So he probably had some sort of a patriarchal role in the family. Maybe he has served as a tremendously bad example for his brothers. He has led his brothers down the wrong path. And part of the reason that they reject the, the relationship with God is because he first rejected this relationship with God. So, in a sense, that guilt is heaped upon him. And he is now in hell suffering this enormous guilt. And he thinks, I can lessen my guilt if my brothers get converted. Now, that's sort of a stretch, isn't it? But let me, let me say why I think that that is the case here. In hell, he is experiencing not only this torment, he is experiencing enormous, enormous guilt. Remember that strange verse in uh, Mark 7? Yeah. Mark 9, verse 47, 48. Um, Jesus has just said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, etc., etc. Um, it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to be thrown in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Kind of a strange thing, this worm not dying, what is that all about? 
Uh, well, historically, the theologians have considered the worm that doesn't die to be this everlasting, guilty conscience. This eternally guilty conscience that is never abated, that is never lessened, that is never reconciled, but forever and ever and ever this guilty conscience hammers upon the thoughts and the emotions of those who are condemned in hell to be an eternity of suffering under a guilty conscience. In your notes, I've got uh, Psalm 51, verse uh, verse 3. David has uh, just come to repentance, or he's about to come to repentance over the Bathsheba adultery and the murder of Uriah. And he says, uh, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Take that concept and make it eternal. And that's a picture of, of what he's suffering in hell. He's suffering this guilt, this racking, hammering, never relenting guilt that weighs upon him. You know what it's like to feel guilty? We all know what that's like, right? Uh, I still have things, uh, you know, from 30 years ago that I'll feel uh, either guilty or shameful about. I wish that didn't happen. I wish I never said that. I wish I never did that. And I know that we all experience those sorts of things, right? We've repented and, and just uh, the enemy will just bring that back and we'll have these feelings of guilt and you just, you ever like me and you just want those thoughts to just leave you alone because they're unpleasant? Take that and wrap it up into eternity. But also, you need to magnify it. Because you know what? Your guilty thoughts are just a part because you don't remember a whole lifetime of things that would bring guilt upon you. In hell, those things are going to be sharpened to where we don't just have guilty thoughts over this experience and that experience. and this. We're going to remember a whole lifetime I shouldn't say we. Those that are there are going to remember a whole lifetime of things that heap guilt upon us. Unrelenting torment of thoughts and feelings of guilt that will never go away. But let's also think about just how they will be accentuated. Okay, So in your notes, I've put a couple of things. Uh, the guilty conscience of the condemned sinner will not be abated by, number one, a misguided sinful culture. Do you know how how uh, big of a work our culture does to ease the guilt of sinners? A culture that is accepting of uh, pornography or homosexual activity or cheating on your wife, or fornication, whatever. A culture that is affirming of all of that goes a long way to ease the guilt of a guilty conscience. I was writing this yesterday. I was writing these words yesterday in Starbucks. And the table beside me was a meeting of a mother, her daughter, five or six-year-old daughter, and a person that was interviewing for a nanny position. And the conversation was sort of stilted, interview kind of thing. Uh, they were asking questions and answering questions and whatnot. And they got to a point in the conversation where the person being interviewed said, I need you to know something. Um, I am transitioning. To which the mother 
said, wonderful. Wonderful. That's wonderful news. I'm excited for you. And heaped affirmation upon her. Can you imagine what that does to the work of the Holy Spirit who's trying to bring conviction upon this person? We live in a culture that is like a powerful locomotive driving this train of easing guilt further down the line. In hell, there will be no society that eases our guilt by affirming our sin. That will be stripped away and we will see it for the clear guilt that it is. Uh, number two, though, also, um, there will be an eternity in which the guilty conscience experiences no distractions of life. Do you know how, uh, when you're sort of fighting those feelings of guilt and those thoughts of guilt, you know how it's kind of helpful to distract yourself? Watch a movie, read a book, you know, go for a walk, whatever. We live in a world that has gotten so efficient at distracting us we live in one big distraction. You can't stand in line at the bank without a TV on. You can't, uh, you can't go eat at a restaurant without a TV on in your face. We live in a world that distracts. If you let it, it will distract every moment of your time. All that will be taken away. There will be no more, oh, let me lose myself in a book for a while. There will be no distraction from this eternal, tormenting, guilty conscience, which I think that is part of what is meant by darkness. You know, it tells us that we're in utter, uh, that those who are there are in utter darkness. Um, one thing about utter darkness is you lose all sense of communion with anybody. You can be in a room full of people, and if that room goes completely dark, there's no sense of fellowship or communion. It's like you're there by yourself. In hell, there will be no support from others who are there with you. To say, you know, hey, we're in this together. You know, or at least we'll be miserable together. You know, there's none of that. It's like you would be all alone in that environment. Uh, number three, there's also, in hell, there'll be no escape mechanisms. Think of the escape mechanisms that we have in our culture that uh, are used prolifically to ease guilty consciences. Alcohol, uh, illicit drugs, all of those things. So many people use those in order to ease a guilty conscience. Or uh, drugs of illegal, not illegal, but drugs of legal nature, like eight-hour binges on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or six hours on the Internet, or, or whatever it may be. There will be none of those things that are, are escape mechanisms. Uh, number four, there will be no rest. Do you know how when... Um, you're facing something really hard, really unpleasant, and you're wrestling with it, and you get some sleep, and, and you wake up, and the situation is has not changed one iota, but it's better, because you rested, right? You just go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, like, when I am in my deepest, darkest time, it is easy just to cry and say, sleep, right. and that's, it's never impossible. Right. And that's why a lot of people that are suffering from depression find it hard to get out of bed, because yeah. they want to just continue that, right? But there will be no rest. Look at what Revelation 14 says. Um, it says, they have no rest, day or night. Or Revelation 20, they will be tormented day and night forever. There will not be, okay, let me just take a nap. I'll feel better after a nap. Let me get some rest. I'll, there will be no rest from this. And we could go, or the last one I put here, lack of spiritual understanding. Okay, By that I mean, um, those who are condemned to hell will have a, perfect understanding of their guilt. 
Right now, there's a lot of lost sinners in this life who should probably feel a lot more guilty than they do because they lack a spiritual understanding of their sin. And hell, that won't happen. Notice how the rich man, he's, he, he doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't argue the fact that he's there. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, can you reevaluate this? He knows he's guilty. And he knows he's guilty for his brother's lostness, in a sense, as well, too. So here he is, the, the worm never dying, this guilt heaped upon him. He seeks, I think, to ease that by at least sending Lazarus to his brothers. Uh, but, uh, but verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus there told us why it is that so many people never repent. And it's not because they lack information. And it's not because they lack a certain experience. It's not that if, if his brothers had this experience of seeing Lazarus, whom they would recognize, seeing him come back from the dead, and, and Lazarus says to them, repent, that they will be convicted. Jesus says to us, faith and repentance come one way, by hearing the word of God. So that teaches us. Remember last time we, we looked at one of the traits of Scripture in the passage before this. It taught us about what we, what, uh, what we call the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That means that all of Scripture is inspired. That it's not valid to say I accept the message of the Bible but I reject some parts of it. It doesn't work. You either reject it all or reject none of it. This week we see another aspect of Scripture and that is what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. Meaning... The scriptures are all the information that is needed to bring about repentance, conversion, salvation, and living perfectly before God. All of the information that's needed is in the scriptures. The, the scriptures are sufficient for that. And so Abraham answers him to say, no, more information won't help. This certain experience won't help. His heart will either reject the Scriptures or will not reject the Scriptures. But all these sorts of spiritual experiences won't help. Jesus can say that very confidently because here's the second reason that I think Lazarus was named. Because John chapter 12, there's going to be a Lazarus that is raised from the dead. Remember? And I think that's the other reason why Jesus intentionally named this person Lazarus. Because there's another Lazarus that came back from the dead and did he cause the Jews to believe? Some believed, but the others, the ones who didn't believe already, were affirmed in their unbelief and became more resolute in their resistance to Jesus. And in fact, John tells us that's the point that they began plotting to not only kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. <clears throat> but then, of course, there was another who was raised from the dead. Jesus himself. And neither did that cause them to believe in the, in the testimony of the soldiers. And their response to that, their response was, was not, you must have been drunk. 
What you're crazy. That couldn't have happened. Their response was, We'll give you some money. We'll protect you. But we gotta keep this quiet. So neither would an experience like that change in one's heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The last point to make is not a point directly from the passage, but just a point that we would we would not do well to miss sins. Of course, the torment that's described, the horrendous treatment of the rich man in hell. Jesus experienced not one ounce less than that on our behalf. The Scriptures teach us that in order to, for Him to become sin, He was forsaken by His Father and heaped upon Him was all that we just read about in the Bible for you and for me. enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.